and this would be the easiest way to take this survey, don't know, are not familiar with the name Michael Vick. If, you've, if you're not familiar with Michael Vick, raise your hand for me. See, pretty well known. If you, Mike Vick, Michael Vick is a professional football player. He's a quarterback. Got in trouble a couple, three or four years ago uh, for uh, liking the dog fighting too much. And it was a, let's just leave it at that. I'll just say, uh, Mike has rehabilitated his life. He's actually come under the discipleship and tutoring of uh, Tony Dungy, who is a really, really neat Christian football coach, and I think a lot of him. Michael Vick plays for the Philadelphia Eagles. He is the um, marquee player for the Philadelphia Eagles. Most people know that. Uh, How many of you know the name Chip Kelly? Yes, thank you very much. Chip Kelly is the new head coach of the Philadelphia Eagles, and uh, he's well-known. Andy uh, Kapler just uh, basically says, hallowed be thy name, every time Chip's name is mentioned. So there's kind of this real connection to Oregon where he was the football coach at the Great Oregon Duck for the Great Oregon Ducks, and then now he's coaching at the professional rank, the leader of this team, several million dollars a year in salary. And you might think to yourself, yeah, I mean, he's well-known. How many of you know who Josh Hinkst is? I do. Josh Hinkst is a friend of mine. Josh Hinkst and I talked on the phone yesterday, caught up. He was in the church where I was a pastor in Florida. At that time, he was a graduate assistant at Florida State University in their strength and conditioning program. And since then, he has gone to work for Florida State University as a strength coach. And then he was with the Atlanta Falcons. And then he was with the University of Nebraska and then the Jacksonville Jaguars, and just a month ago, two months ago, he got hired by the Philadelphia Eagles as their strength and conditioning coach. You don't hear much about the strength and conditioning coaches at football teams. When they have press conferences and they announce, here are our coaches, they generally don't even mention by name the strength and conditioning coaches. They, they are a part of the staff, they are coaches, but they just don't have the, the outward public profile that other football coaches have. But if you'll talk to anyone who works with a football program, they'll tell you that they are an essential part of the success of any football program. The nature of the success of any organization, and of course I'm into sports, and forgive me if you're an art person and you're like really tired of hearing about the sports analogies. I'd talk about art if I had any culture in me at all, and so forgive me for that. Honestly, it's a huge deficit, so I appreciate your your kindness towards me. Um, but it would be true if I could give an analogy of like an art gallery. You know, it's not just the curator. I mean, I do that, but I would mess it up in some way, shape, or form. So all I can tell you is that within businesses, within organizations, whatever they are, I can tell you as a general rule, the nature of them is they cannot be, if they're going to succeed at a, at a, at a great level, a one-person operation. And even when there is a very visible person who is the face or the name associated with this, They almost inevitably have to recognize people from the internal parts of their organization that really make it work. Um, For those of you who are familiar with the Old Testament, you know who Moses is. All right, so most everybody who has any association with anything religious, Jewish, Christian, um, even the Islamic population, they know who Moses is. Most people with any degree of familiarity with the Old Testament know who Joshua is, but not a lot of people know who her is. 
And no, it's not Charlton Heston, Ben-Hur. It's, it's, there's a guy named Her. And, and I want to direct you to a story that is not the central focus of our energies today. We're going to be talking about the body of Christ. But for, before I can actually launch into kind of a quick anal, uh, an analysis, I want to do a, a quick overview of a story from Exodus chapter 17, verses 10 through 13. This is the first military campaign. You've got to understand, from the first time that the Israelites showed up and saw God on Mount Sinai and the clouds and the fire and the whole enchilada, there was only three months passed. Between that, in that three-month period, they'd actually had uh, somebody come to fight them. All right, and so the scriptures say this. Joshua fought the Amalekites as Moses had ordered And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went to the top of the hill. As long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning. But whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. When Moses' hands grew tired, they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. Aaron and Hur held his hands up, one on one side and one on the other, so that his hands remained steady till sunset. So Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with the sword. Now, this, this story here, this little microcosm, is all you need to know about the functioning of the body of Christ. We'll talk about it some more, particularly from 1 Corinthians chapter 12. But there are really three players, four if you want to count Aaron and Hur as you know, a single unit but, or separate units, but three functioning parts of the Israel, Israel machine, if you will. You got Joshua who's actually going to go fight, and this is Joshua's thing. You can read other parts of the Bible and find out that. All right, you got Moses who's going to pray and talk to God. That seems to be Moses' thing. And then you've got Aaron and Hur, whose job it simply is to facilitate Moses doing his job. So the question could be asked you could sit around and debate who's the most significant in the victory of the Israelites versus the Amalekites? Who is the person who is most responsible? If we look at the persons involved in this, I mean, clearly Moses is the leader. He's the point person. He is the, the visionary person who's saying, this is where we're going. This is what you're going to do. Joshua, you're in charge of war, and you're over here, and you two are coming with me up to the top of the mountain. You could say Moses is clearly in charge. But could Moses really have succeeded without Joshua? I mean, you could say a case could be made for Joshua. He's the only one that actually put himself in any kind of physical danger. I mean, sure, Moses signed up for mountaintop viewing. I mean, how difficult was that? Listen, you go fight that battle, young man. I'm going to go up there and hold up my arms. I mean, that, to me, if I were about to go off to battle, the guy who said, I'm going to stand back here and watch you, I would not necessarily be thrilled about that arrangement. But Joshua could be argued the most important person in this victory. But then there are those who would say, no, it's Aaron and her. Because, see, Joshua isn't winning unless Moses has got his arms up. Moses doesn't get his arms up to pray unless he's got two guys willing to hold him in his exhaustion and continue that. So who's most important? Last week I gave my analysis of the gospel application of uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 18, which was the first section of this teaching that we're doing on the body the first verses we did were 12 through 18 and verse 18 says in fact God has arranged the parts of the body every one of them just as he wanted them to be 
My excitement about that verse was related to my own personal encounter and my own personal study and my own personal interaction as I was preparing for my message last week and this week as well, which is to say, I don't know if there are times in your life where you feel like I'm not significant enough a player to make a difference. In the body of Christ, I am the big toenail, you know, and so exactly what do I do that is all that important, particularly in a culture that is really, really fond of exalting the body parts that have prominent roles in the world. And all of us, especially what was going on in the Corinthian church, all of us can testify to the fact that it is difficult when people dishonor you, when you don't feel valued. These are internal needs that we have. We were created by a God who likes to be worshiped for who he is, not just what he does. So there is something in us, a reflection of the image of God that desires and needs the affirmation and the honor that we get ultimately from God, but God practically works it through people. We have to see that God sovereignly is in charge of everything, that if he's given you certain gifts and given me certain gifts, The key is that you and I would be comfortable in who he made us to be. Practically speaking, verse 19 of 1 Corinthians 12 answers the question, why God has done this? Perhaps you've never, like me, said, why have you made me this way, God? Why have you made me not a person who does this or not a person who does this? Why have you made me a person who has this capability? Verse 19 says, if they were all one part, where would the body be? The question that gets asked in verse 19 is really simple. God wants the body to be seen, not just one part. In other words, nothing God intends to do through human beings on this earth will take place through just one person. And that's because God is glorified when the focus is on him and not one single part of his body. It is part of our broken nature to want to be worshipped and want to be honored even above God, unfortunately. It is part of God's grace that he would prevent you and I from ever being in that kind of position. And he has arranged the parts of the body so that collectively he will be seen through us. Modern-day missiologists refer to this as the incarnate church. This is how Christ is seen in our community. They literally look at us and they see, quote unquote, the body of Christ. We are what the culture who does not know Jesus, their exposure to who Jesus is, is directly connected to their perspective on the local church. And on a, on a global scale, they can, look at, they can look at representations of the church and get really poisoned and terrible perspectives, erroneous perspectives on who Jesus is by virtue of what they're seeing in the interaction of the body of Christ. We are looking at the body this week. It's the third month where we're continuing to hammer home this notion of what our mission is as a church. We're a young church. We're still gathering together people who are saying, you know, I want to be a part of this mission. I'm going to pray together to make this happen. I want to see the Lord work in all this. But it starts with us coming alive, revived in our enthusiasm for our relationship with God and and his grace. And that's why we just bang the snot out of grace all the time. 
because we think that real love for God is born of a, an understanding of God's love for us. Then we would think in our enthused state, we would then begin to reach the people who we work with, employees we have at our business, employers who pay us, people in our sphere of influence, family and friends. We would begin to share with them the reality of the truth that God likes them a whole lot more than they know and understand. This reaching out to friends is the second component of our ministry. And this month, we're really kind of focusing in on that component of our ministry. We're saying we're going to be a part of renewing culture. And that means that collectively, there are going to be times where we as a church actually do things together to attempt to see the community renewed in a particular way. It also means that individually, as parts of his body, we represent our body in the culture bringing about new life and change, renewing things so that the gospel can be seen in them so that people have hope to know that no matter where they are in their life, there's still an opportunity for God to come in and bring new life. We revive, we reach friends, we renew culture. In that, we're looking this month at the body the first we had, you can hear the sermon. It'll be uploaded tomorrow from last week. The, the body is brain-directed. Jesus is the head. And last week's sermon, we talked about everything from ecclesiology, how a church should be governed biblically, to the notions that we mentioned already that we have to be secure in who he made us to be so that we can actually function in the body. We're today going to talk about how the body, the O of the word body, operates together. And any organization, and I wasn't always a pastor. I worked in radio for several years before that and worked as a sales representative for a courier service right out of college. And, you know, like any of you, worked in part-time jobs at the lowest level of a company, whether it be washing dishes or sweeping the parking lot. I, I did all that when I was young, too. And any organization that wants to operate more efficiently or operate at a higher margin of success they've got to ask some difficult questions. And one of the questions they have to ask is why people aren't performing at a high level. If, if you've been associated with a kind of an organization that's done a reorganization or a reconfiguration of what they do, they'll say, you know, what do we have to do differently? Why are the employees of our company discouraged? Why are they not functioning at a high level? What's going on behind the scenes that we don't know about? Because like at any restaurant, the the servers and the hostesses, they'll all smile at you and go, how are you? Welcome. Can I get you something to drink? But if you've ever worked at a restaurant, you know as quick as they get back into that kitchen, there's some ugly stuff going on back there. Hey, look at table five. And they just go absolutely crazy on the customers and they're fighting with each other and they're complaining about management. And those kind of things tend to drain the employees, the servants, the people who are actually doing the work of the energy they need to do their best. And so in the same way, the Apostle Paul is looking at this Corinthian church and he's saying, you know, you guys have a lot of, a lot of potential. And like any 28-year-old will tell you, there's a transition from age 28 to 32 where you've got a lot of potential starts to feel like an insult. You know, I mean, when, you know, if you're in your 40s and people are telling you, you've got a lot of potential, something's not right with that picture. So, He's saying to the Corinthian church, you've got, you've got some potential here, but there are some things that keep hamstringing your efforts. You are not functioning organizationally in a very healthy way. You are not 
operating together. And so I have two thoughts today from this text about how we should be operating if you and I feel compelled to be part of a local church. And I'm assuming if you've been here more than once, you're thinking, yeah, this might be my home church. Now, this would be true if you're here or you join a church down the street or you move to another part of the country or another part of this vast city. God has called you and I to be part of a body of believers. There are no lone rangers in the world. God has no intention that you'd be out there all by yourself. We have gotten to a place in American church culture where it's very easy for us to kind of blow in, get our fast food service, and blow out. The church is not supposed to be in an in and out. All right, It's supposed to be a place where you come in, you eat a meal, you enjoy some fellowship, and then you get behind the counter and you start serving meals. This is an all-inclusive kind of place. This is not about just being served. It's about serving, too. It's about being a part of something that ultimately is going to point to Jesus. And so we need to ask those same questions. What will help us operate well? The first thing is this. The body will operate well as we need each other. As it is, it says in verse 20, there are many parts but one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. Right? One of the things that always confused me about reading through this passage is I could never understand the relationships and what exactly this passage was saying, and I've read it several times, to say the least. And an important way to dissect what exactly this verses are getting at is to actually take a quick look at the original language of the, of the Greek word for need, which is chiria, chiria. It's a word that also means debt. It means need, but we always think of needing others in terms of our need, like I need somebody to help me move from one place to another. I need you. But what this passage is saying is that someone would think they were more important and that they had no need of you. See, there's a big difference. It's not me saying that I don't need you because I'm just so upset with you that I don't want anything to... It's saying I'm above you. I have no need of you. And you can tell also by the parts of the body that are speaking to the other parts of the body. The eye cannot say to the hand. Of course, the eye's got to think, I got major skills. I mean, we have three opticians in this small church of our or, uh, ophthalmologists. Is that right? Optometrists, daggone it. I was a disc jockey. You think I understand it just, what I, I don't know which doctor they, I'm telling you, they could tell you the eye is a complicated thing. If you're going to look at the skill level of the eye versus the skill level of the pinky, the eye is going to win every time. You know, it's got so much, you know, there aren't a lot of doctors of the pinky. There are doctors of the hands, but you know what? Do they really set up shop and, you know, in, in public places and say, come in, get something for your hand. The eyes are really important. So the eye is saying to the hand, I don't need you. Look at the other one, too. It says, the head cannot say to the feet. Of course, the head, in our body context, is is Christ. But there's no way in the world that any of us could ever say to another part of our physical body, I don't need you. The head could get really heady and say, you know, I'm so above everything else. The scriptures are clear 
that we not only need each other, we are called to operate from the standpoint of obligation. The body part speaking in this case might think itself more important or more significant, and it might say, I have no obligation, I have no need of you. And this is what was happening in the Corinthian church. And in that context, what would happen was, is people would begin discouraged and say, I don't want to be a part of this. I have been dishonored by the I. I have been dishonored by this prominent, important, cool-looking part of the body of Christ. And as a small part of the body of Christ, as a seemingly insignificant part of the body of Christ, I feel dishonored. And then they jump ship. Now, Jesus has set the greatest example for us in this and Philippians chapter 2 verses 1 through 5 even though I don't have it on a slide and behind me I would encourage you if you have a Bible or you have a phone with a Bible on it you can read along with me because I want to read the first five verses of Philippians chapter 2 it is completely worth enjoying so I'm going to read it slowly this is Paul's teaching to the Philippian church he says if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ if any comfort from his love if any fellowship with the spirit if any tenderness or compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Now here at verse 3 is where the rubber starts to really hit the road for the body of Christ. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. And this is the real issue, is that Jesus has given us the perfect example of somebody who deserved, who really did not have need of us. I mean, he literally could function just fine on his own. God is self-sufficient. He isn't up there crying, I need you. He loves us. He wants us. But he is completely self-sufficient as God, our creator. Jesus, though, he was worshipped by angels, though he was honored as the King of kings and Lord of lords long before he ever was risen from the dead. Jesus, the one through whom all things were created, humbled himself and gave attention to the least in culture, to the people that those in the world would think they are the marginalized, they are the the scum of the earth. These are the people that are not the highly placed wealthy or the super uber intelligent religious. Jesus comes in and says, I'm going to give attention to the parts of my creation that are broken. The Psalms would say that a bruised reed God will not break. A smoldering wick he will not snuff out. This is our, this is our God and King. This is Jesus setting an example for us when we have a tendency to think of ourselves as more important or significant than another person. This, of course, is evidence that we've not experienced Christ's humility personally. It's one of the great paradoxes, if you will, that people who are insecure tend to exalt themselves, that people who feel dishonored tend to push themselves into positions of honor and demand that you respect them. It is something akin to what Jesus said when he said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. If you ever meet somebody who's phenomenally insecure about a particular component of their life, you'll hear them talk about it a lot. So for you and I, when we cannot demonstrate a measure of humility 
a recognition of somebody else's need of us, let alone our need for them, when we are incapable of truly humbling ourselves and saying, you are as important as I am, it is a demonstration of the fact that we don't really get the gospel, that Jesus loves us, and that we are not worthy of that kind of love, that he is this exalted God and Savior, and he has humbled himself to our little corner of the world to love us, and that should create within us a sense of just overwhelming joy and humility that would say, there's nobody beneath me. Jesus has called you and I to serve others, to care for others, and and, and it's called us to, to love one another and need each other, even if the need we have for each other is the need to serve someone else. Some of that comes very naturally in the context of community. And this past week, my daughter uh, passed out after giving blood and, and she was hurrying back to class. So she took a shortcut in between these two trailers on campus and passed out in between the trailers and dragged her face down a fence and clunked her head on a concrete. And, and, and so they call from the school. And my son actually is the one who called and said, you know, I'm in the, 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 the nurse's office with Holly. And I thought, this is interesting. My son called me before the school did. And I was so happy and proud of him that he'd come to her aid. You know, that he, he had seen her being carted, bleeding from her face, and for the first time in his life, skipped a class, not because he just didn't feel like it, but because there was a legitimate excuse for him to blow off the class he was going to go to because he was, like, concerned about his sister. It wasn't anything that was difficult for him to do. It wasn't anything that made him think, oh, I really wanted to go to this class or I had some friends I wanted to talk to and now I have to go take care of my little sister. It's his sister. And the reason I know this is the case is because it wasn't months ago that Nick was going through a really, really difficult time. He didn't want to talk to his mother and I about it. We knew he was upset. And he said, I just want to talk to Holly about it. So the two of them go in his room and pray together and be together. And I'm like, wow, we're kind of out of this picture now, aren't we? And that's because they've developed a relationship. And in the context of that relationship, caring for each other, needing each other goes both ways. They have recognized their need for one another. And in, in another way, I'll tell you that this is very symptomatic or, or picturesque of what it means for us to want to love and need each other is, we, we need to know that we are loved by God. And as we're loved by God, we'll want to love each other. And so the first point I'd like to make, obviously, was that the body operates well as we need each other. But the second I would like to share with you this morning is the body operates well when we honor each other. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable, and the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. The word here, honor, is used in other places in the New Testament uh, as the word price, as in 1 Corinthians 6.20, that Jesus bought us with a price. And if you think about it, it makes sense. It means we assign value to things that we honor. You know, so when we think about, I'm going to honor this person, it's to say, I've assigned them a value. 
they are so valuable to me that I will not dishonor them. One of the things I like to give as an example in our home is this. Um, my, I won't tell you which of the two people in my family are late everywhere they go, but there are four of us. Two of us are, are like anal retentively on time, and two of us are late everywhere we go. You can figure it out for yourself later or ask Carolyn. All right. Now, when the two people that are chronically late um, get places on time, it's usually because they esteem the person on the waiting end of that time as honorable. So an employer that says, I need you to be here at this time will motivate them to get there on time. Uh, 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 a significant other with whom they have great love and affection says, I need you to be here at this time. They'll be there on time. Other people say their husband or their, or their uh, oh, I gave it away there, didn't I? Or their dad. Um, they, if they say, hey, I'd like you here at 2, it's a really good possibility it'll be 2.15, 2.32, I've kind of gotten used to that. All right? But I'm saying... There is a sense in which when somebody, when you and I say, I think this is really important, I place a really high value on this, I will be on time. That's usually the case with people, certainly in our family, with church. My family tends to not roll in here late because I work here and that makes them a little uncomfortable. But that to say, you and I are in a place where we, we have already in our lives in so many places assigned honor to certain people and no honor to other people. That's just seemingly a natural part of life. When we talk about the body of Christ, we need to honor one another. We need to set a value on everybody. But in this verse, it seems to say the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. So we have to proactively go, what in our culture, in our framework of brokenness as humans, what position in the body of Christ would make people think that's not particularly valuable? We can kind of do without that. We can outsource that. What, what is that? Well, the Bible would tell you and I that we have to go way out of our way to place special honor on those parts that we're called to, play, to pay special honor to the parts of the body that, quote-unquote, seem to be weaker or we think are less honorable. And it's really important to watch the language there, too, because it, it denotes not that they are weaker or they are less honorable. It, the emphasis is on the way we perceive them, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker and then in verse 23, in the parts of the body we think are less honorable. That doesn't mean that they are. It just means that we've been conditioned in our world and in our brokenness to think those things and to feel those things. Romans 12.10 says, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. We're called to be devoted. I don't know what comes to mind when you hear the word devoted, I hear Olivia Newton-John singing in Greece, but that's just me, and it isn't because I'm a big musical fan. It's just my daughter does it, and there you go. Hopelessly devoted to you comes to mind, and I think, is that really the way I would characterize my love for the fellow members of the church I'm a part of? That I'm devoted to them? 
We're to be devoted to one another. And that'd be true if you weren't, this isn't a guilt trip for Prism Church. This is a guilt trip for wherever you're going to go. It's really what the Lord has called you and I to for our benefit anywhere we would go, that we would be devoted to one another, that we would make certain that the parts that seem important by the world standards that those parts make a priority of making others feel more important than themselves. If you serve in a leadership role, if you aspire to that, and the Bible says that's a good thing, then you have to understand that part of that leadership role is going out of your way to honor people who are not leaders. Your, one of your number one jobs is to be the person who is encouraging the parts of the body of Christ that seem less honorable than a leader. Your job, if you choose to accept it, is to care for people who you think others might not be caring for. By honoring each other, what happens is we build each other up. Think of an organization. You've probably worked somewhere. I know I have. Where the employees just felt beaten down. They felt pushed around. They felt like the leadership of their company didn't really care about them. They were cogs in a machine. And what happens is, is people tend to shut down in those moments. They tend to go on strike, even if not formally, informally. Things start dragging. Morale goes down the john. The next thing you know, things aren't going so well. When we honor each other, we raise the effective ministry of our church to an entirely new level. You may say, how are we supposed to go about being the body of Christ in a church, as small a church as we are? as insignificant as we are in the grander scheme of things? Well, there's some very practical application points here. If we want to just make the organization, quote-unquote, that we are exceedingly efficient at good at what we do, then all the 20 of us in this room this morning and the 20 that aren't here because they couldn't set their clocks ahead, uh, all we have to do is encourage each other. I'm appreciating you. I appreciate you. We make this a place where, if you had to think of it analogously to the place that you hated to work, but make this a place that you can't, you can't stay away from you enjoy work so much. This would be one of those places where we'd find ourselves just very naturally loving and caring for others, just caught up in the wake of all the care and honor that we have for each other. By honoring each other, we build up the body so that Jesus can be more seen than ever before. By honoring and building one another up, the kingdom of Christ as it advances is expanded and Jesus is seen by more people than ever before. Now, here's another practical tip for us as a church, and that is that we cannot need or honor each other if we don't make time to be available to each other and know each other. And one of the things we're doing this year is really encouraging people to be a part of some type of community group, missional community because the only way we can really honor one another is to spend enough time with each other to know where we need to be honored. And, and that may sound like I'm saying, you know, you should be more involved, but if you're going to call yourself a member of a, a church or a person who is a part of the body of Christ, this is the call of Scripture, that you have to make time to have other people know your needs so you can humble yourself and say, how can you help me, but also be there for them. It also means that there are going to be people who wander into our world or you invite into our world and our church is known, as small as it is, for being a very friendly place. And this is a good thing. Our logo even looks friendly. You know, that's what we're told. 
And it's to say, we, we don't just do that because that's kind of cute. We're doing it because we really want people to see Jesus. Now, the gospel application of this whole message is that if we don't know the pleasure of our Father over us, if we don't comprehend His love in light of the price He paid for us, if we don't realize how incredibly honored we are by Him, that He would pay such an amazingly high ransom for somebody so undeserving, we have been honored and valued by Jesus like those... New Testament accounts of his approach to the dregs of society. If you are humble and broken and Jesus is coming to you and he lifts you up, he has honored you. And in light of that, we are driven to honor others because we see his value on their lives. Even if you yourself say, you know, I don't feel like I really like that person all that much. You have to be able to recognize that Jesus does. And because Jesus loves that person a lot, because Jesus puts a high price and a high value on that person, that you feel, because he's been so good to you, compelled to do the same. uh, uh, I'm going to get to do something at the end of this month that's very exciting for me. And this is a byproduct of 20 years lived in the South. And that is, at the end of this month, I am going to spend Friday and Saturday... Uh, over in Sonoma, not Sonoma, I'm sorry, uh, over in the Inland Empire at the NASCAR track uh, for the Nationwide Series and NASCAR practice. Uh, The Auto Club uh, Speedway is over in the Inland Empire, and uh, I'm really excited about being able to go there. I'm going to do sermon preparation there on Friday, so I'm going to kill two birds with one stone. So if my sermon that week, I'm talking really fast, you'll know why. I've been watching cars go 200 miles an hour around a circle. Um, And and then I'm taking my wife to her first race, and she's really thrilled, as you can imagine, as any woman would be, you know. I mean, what woman isn't honored to go watch Dale Earnhardt Jr. race? And so we're going on Saturday. The race, the NASCAR-level race is on Sunday. The nationwide race, which is kind of like the minor leagues of racing, is on Saturday. I looked for every potential loophole that would enable me to miss church on Sunday morning so I could go to the NASCAR race. Couldn't find it. So I'll be here with you on Sunday. Uh, Praise the Lord, there is the minor league nationwide race on Saturday. Very, very thrilled as a redneck from the South, and and at least a closet redneck from the South. If you've ever watched a NASCAR race, and you Californians, I don't know why you haven't, Uh, It is entertaining at at, at the deepest level. Uh, There is a moment when the victor wins. And in the victory circle, they begin to do something that is rather amazing. They begin to rattle off all the sponsors. It's like the Academy Awards for rednecks. You win, and then you thank everybody. So they actually cannot remember all this, and I won't go into why. They, uh, They have a card, though, a cue card behind them and they'll rattle off a dozen sponsors. See, they're really 200-mile-an-hour billboards. You know, they have sponsorship all over them. And they don't refer to, for instance, Jeff Gordon's car is referred to as the number 24 DuPont Chevrolet. It's not just Jeff Gordon's car. you got to get the kick in there for DuPont. And then he thanks Goodyear Tires and everybody else. He'll go through a whole list of these people. And for them, it's become kind of obligatory. 
You don't find them really, like, really excited about thanking Fram oil filters or Goody's headache powder or any of the people that are stuck on little stickers all over their car. But you can, at times, like in the Academy Awards, pick up on the real sincerity when these kind of tough rednecky guys in victory circle get a, get a, in the background, you can see them finally see their wife or their child coming toward them. And sometimes some of them will start crying. So they're rattling out the list of the sponsors. I just won't thank this brake company and this shock company. And I'm going to thank this and that and the other thing. And then they get a picture of Junior, their kid, and their wife coming. And they turn into like a ball of mush. And it, for me, it's always been kind of a really great picture of like the obligatory versus the genuine. And the person who says, I'm going to do this because I have to do this. And the person that says... I have need of thanking my wife and my children. I have need of doing this. They are a part of my life. This is supposed to be what a person who's experienced Jesus, genuinely experienced Jesus, experienced the love and compassion and care of Jesus. They're supposed to be able to reflect that same type of non-obligatory joy towards others. It's supposed to flow from us like my son's care for his sister. It's born of a relationship where they've made the time to care for one another and then in crisis, it isn't like, oh, this is a real interruption in my schedule. They just find themselves reflecting the love of God to each other. This is the body of Christ. It operates at its peak efficiency when people need each other and when people honor each other. So let's pray together that that would be our experience with each other. Let's pray. Father, today um, we are called to uh, love each other well. And Father, I've seen a lot of that in this church. And I'm very grateful for as young a church as we are, how often I see people caring for each other and how much joy that gives me. I also know, Lord, that uh, the first step of...